0: Welcome to the Unfair Advantage sessions, uh, a series of interviews with some of the world's top leaders in the digital, social, and research technology industry. My name is Calvin Yonk. I'm the MD of UNO, a South African company dedicated to being the glue between these incredible, incredible global technology providers and local African professionals. Uh, and I believe that the tech is, is only as good as the people behind them. And from the end users and their needs to the creators, the founders, uh, and the leaders of the companies themselves. So, so these interviews are intended to be a bit of a deep dive into the experiences, the history, uh, and the philosophies are, that led these leaders to where they are now. Uh, and our goal is to uncover the unfair advantage. So today, I've got the incredible pleasure to speak to the founder and CEO of the company which has supported my company for the longest period, Brandwatch. Uh, Giles Palmer, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate your time.
1: Uh, it's a pleasure. I'm really, really happy to be here.
0: Awesome. Giles, there's, there's, there's quite a lot I want to I talk about, but I, but I thought let's start with, with the, the elephant in the room, I suppose. It's my company, you know, I worked with another company called Crimson Hexagon for many years, um, and now we work with you guys at, at Brandwatch would you mind explaining how that change came about and and maybe while you're doing it, give us a a brief overview of what Brandwatch is?
1: Yeah, sure. Thank you. So um, Brandwatch had been going for something like eight or nine years. Um, Uh, and we got, and we're a venture capital back company. We'd raised a bunch of money. Um, we'd opened up offices in the US and on continental Europe. It was, it was from the UK originally, um, where it started Brighton, in the UK. Brighton, Brighton yeah, little um, Brighton, which is kind of seaside, kind of holiday town. Anyway, um, uh, we got to maybe 50 or $60 million in revenue. And the reason why I kind of call out the number is because that's like uh, a kind of a proxy for for a level of maturity within within a b2b software company so not massive not big um not kind of you know one of these sort of household names or things or but also not really a small startup anymore so so in the kind of middle years of a software company you, you you tend it you tend to kind of go one way or the other. Mostly it's like you get sold, right? Um, so just, you know, you get to a certain scale and then usually you get sold to uh, a bigger kind of software business for for kind of consolidation or, or possibly a private equity company and they maybe can do some consolidation and so on and so forth. So that you get into this kind of period of the of of life of the company where you just think, okay, where's it going? Furthermore, you know, when you take on venture capital investment, um, uh, what I've come to realize is that you're starting a clock. Uh, and that clock is uh, at some point you're going to need to allow the investors to um, to sell their stake in the company because that's their business model, right? They're, uh, they put uh, money or fuel, as it were, into a company as it's looking like it's kind of taking off. Um, but it's loss-making because it costs money to build software and hire salespeople. Especially SaaS, SaaS is one of these you know subscription uh, business models where you build the thing up front, you hire the salespeople up front, you build the company pretty much or part of the company up front, and then and then you rent it right. You rent the solution to people. So there's this big upfront front capital requirement to actually build a company and hire the salespeople and so on and so forth before you start getting that rental income. So, so it's almost impossible to build a SaaS company without VC money, um, or at least like significant investment. So you get to this point, VCs are going to want their money back. Uh, you're in the kind of the middle years of an organization. And it's like, you, you're faced with this choice as a founder. And that choice is basically Are you a consolidator? Are you going to start kind of building a bigger and bigger group? Because uh, unless you're one of these like really rare companies that's growing, at you know, 50, 100 percent when you're already 50 million dollars in revenue, that's very unusual. I mean, Slack did it and Zoom have done it and so on. But but, you know, the reason why you know their names is because there are that many of them. Um, Or are you going to be part of somebody else's group? Are you going to get consolidated? And, and so I looked around at that point and thought, um, actually, we're in a pretty strong position. I'm enjoying it. I really like what we're doing. It's interesting. We' kind of we, we think we're creating a new kind of intelligence by, by adding structure and meaning to social media data. And I just thought this is this is a long term kind of play and we're the biggest in the market. And okay, let's have a go at consolidating the market. So I went and spoke to a few of the other players in the market crimson hexagon was pretty much the next biggest they were also us-based we were uk-based so it kind of made sense to kind of bridge the atlantic and and we looked at whether we could actually combine the software to make something which was going to be uh, better than at least as good as but better than either of the two products that um made it up uh and if that was possible uh and then we we realized it was possible so so we thought well, okay let's do this deal and let, let's um let's create a bigger organization and that you know a market leader and, and a company with a bigger engineering team and one that can innovate more quickly and so on and so forth so so that was the reason why we did it so so i mean I guess
0: there was a couple of routes you could have gone. Um, a, a lot of, a lot of similar companies will, would go and acquire or, or merge with a company that does a complementary service. So a yeah. you know, social listening company would go and join with a social media management company. When it yeah. and, and you guys decided to, to, like you say double down on, on social intelligence. What, what was the thinking behind that?
1: That's a really good question. Um, I've not been asked that question before. Um, I think <laughs> the, the the simple reason for that is that um, as a so, as a software business, um, the you don't really have a distribution problem. I mean, I mean, you kind of do. You've got you've got to get in front of the right buyers and 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 so on and so forth, but you know the internet is your distribution platform so so that's really a marketing issue rather than a distribution issue um and and so where what happens is especially in an emerging kind of space you get l- companies of a similar size competing f- ver- um ver- f- ferociously with each other i was gonna say voraciously, f- yeah. <laughs> ferociously with each other and um uh and from a buyer's point of view, it's not obvious which one to go to, right? So, so you're constantly kind of in this kind of mosh pit, fighting each other, grabbing customers from each other, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, when you've got a market or, or 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 kind of a slice of the market, which for which there's a clear leader, and that leader is demonstrably better and has you know a better product, better service, you know is clearly the one to go for. Maybe they're a little bit more expensive, but nevertheless, most people would choose that one. There tends to, it's, it's easier to run that business and it's also a more successful business. So really it was kind of, Brownwatch was slightly the biggest in the market, but there were these, there were four or five companies that were roughly the same size. Pretty much everybody was losing money. And it was like, this market needs to actually become more efficient. Um, it needs to have one or two companies that can be profitable, um, and that uh, and that will be the obvious ones that for buyers to go to. So, so that was the rationale: like create the number one in the market that was that was the 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 right you know the right choice for most people, uh, assuming we could execute against that vision, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, make it profitable, and, and 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 then use that as a base for possibly further M down the road. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's, I
0: mean, and I think I, I would, I would say that you guys have done that. So, so um, it's an incredible story so far. When, when did you start Brandwatch specifically?
1: We launched uh, in August, 2007. So 13 years ago.
0: Yeah. But that, yeah. and that wasn't your, your first stint at, at building a company, right? Um, what were no, the, that was, yeah.
1: yeah, that was yeah. my third.
0: Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, so, Maybe you want to tell us a little bit about the experiences leading up to that, the other companies you built, or even some of the ones that you you worked at what What's that story look like?
1: Yeah, 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 so uh sure thing i i i I left university with a physics degree not knowing what I wanted to do. I didn't want to become a research physicist so uh, so I trained in business I got an accountancy qualification. Which I, you know, didn't enjoy as a profession. I didn't want to become an accountant. So, so I th- this was in the early '90s. So I thought, okay, let's go and work in. Organ- I didn't want to join the city. I did that doesn't appeal to me as a as a kind of a lifelong profession. So, um, I wanted to get into business or industry. So I went to a couple of big companies. Really hated the big company thing. Too corporate, too dull. I remember thinking, if I get if I don't turn up if I don't turn up to work today, this company won't suffer at all. And I, that was just the most soul-destroying moment, I thought, and then I quit the next day. Anyway, I ended up at Sky when Sky was going digital. I was running their, their kind of business planning department and doing deals. And then a friend of mine at Sky and I, we decided um, uh, to try and launch an e-commerce play on interactive TV. And uh, at that time, Sky needed a, um, a health and beauty site. So me and this friend Jeremy um, decided that we'll um, we'll create a health and beauty uh, startup. We called it Five Senses, and um, we hired a couple of buyers. Uh, we quit our jobs. We hired a couple of buyers. I we, we uh, a woman from Liberty and another woman from QVC. Um, uh, a friend of Jeremy's introduced us to um, uh, an engineer, a software engineer called Steve. Um, and so the five of us uh, built this little company, Five Senses, over about three or four months. We got a deal with Sky to build this, to build this uh, online. Um, well, it wasn't online on TV uh, health and beauty thing. Raised 1.5 million dollars, which was a, a total blast from some extraordinary characters and individuals that were introduced by Jeremy's contacts and families. Um, just amazing experience. I'll come back. to That's a whole other story, a whole other episode. Um, <laughs> And then uh, it went to the, the board of Sky Interactive, this deal, just to get it signed off. And they said, you know, who are these people and what's their retail experience? And, and the uh, CEO of Sky Interactive said, well, they, um, they used to work here um, and they want to build a kind of a, an online, um, or sorry, a, a interactive TV um, health and beauty store. And they were like, well, they need more money. They need to go and raise another $5 million, or I think it was, or maybe even $10 million. And, and this was at the end of 99 when the, when the e-commerce crash, or the, the, the uh, you know, um, the dot-com bubble burst, yeah. right? Uh, so we couldn't raise that money. So that business kind of folded within a month or two. So it was a f- like a, a firework. Four months went straight up in the air. Uh, me and Jeremy put twenty five grand in each. And then it just came straight back down to earth like four, four months later. But it was that experience. And when we came back and told the team, oh, um, we're shutting this down um, because the deal we didn't get the deal with Sky, um, the two women from Liberty and Steve uh, uh, basically said, so the um, uh, so, so two buyers, all, the, the, all of the staff, he said, well, what are we going to do? Like, what, what are we going to do next? Let's, let's, let's build an online shop. Let's do whatever, whatever. And if my heart had been in health and beauty as a as a as a category I'd have gone yeah because if we were having such fun and we we kind of got to know each other and it was like there was a real life and energy in that little group um uh but I didn't give a shit about um selling perfumes and cosmetics um so I said no it was really about that deal with Sky and and my lesson there was actually, you've got to really you've got to have an interest in, and, a bit in, and, and a passion, or at least a, some sort of connection with what you're doing, because if you don't, it's so easy to give up when something doesn't go your way, right? Um, whereas uh, with Brandwatch, plenty of stuff has not gone our way. We've had lots of those you know, moments where you've got to go and do this, you've got to go and do that, or we're not going to give you the deal or whatever. And rather than thinking, oh, I'm gonna get, I'm gonna stop now because this is, this is not meant to be, or whatever. I was like, okay, fine, I will go off and do it, and it, and it didn't feel. I mean, it sounds a bit trite, but it didn't feel like work. It felt like, well, it's just part of the journey, right? Yeah. Anyway, so that was five senses, yeah. and, uh, and that, and so that was a, that was that, that didn't work out, and then Steve, uh, who was just doing a PhD at Sussex University had these had these a couple of other friends who were also doing a phd in, in ai and computer science um said look said to me look giles we we want to set up a a tech consultancy building software for other people we don't know anything about finance or or selling actually he was a really good sales guy but um he was a trait he wasn't that's what, how he thought of himself um uh will you come and join uh would you want to come and join us so uh so they were all they all lived in brighton um they were doing PhD at Sussex. I lived in West London. We all put in five thousand pounds. I was pretty much skin at that point, having blown 25,000 on the previous one. Uh, that was the beginning of the end of my marriage, actually. <laughs> and, um, and, and we started this company which. Which was called Runtime Collective, um, and that name was a name that uh, one of Steve, one of their friends had come up with, or one of the other guys, Ollie or and Guillaume, had come up with. You know, super geeky name, right? Runtime that's that's, that's when the computer exercise uh, uh, um, executes code, and Collective we're all in it together. And we had this idea that. Um, We'd all, be, we'd all get paid the same, we'd hire their friends from university, uh, we'd all get paid the same, and everything would be transparent and open, and we'd run it as a, as a collective. Um, now, uh, uh, some of that, and oh, and by the way, Brandwatch, the company behind Brandwatch is still Runtime Collective Limited. Yeah, yeah. Right? So, so, so Brandwatch kind of came out of that five years in. So what was Runtime Collective doing before you came up with Brandwatch? What was the purpose well, of it? We called ourselves web engineers and and we we built systems for for our clients. And so to start with, we built um, any system for anybody. We were just basically kind of geeks for hire. Um, and um, so I managed to land the first couple of contracts Um I think I I think I did some work on on even on the coding on some of them, but I can't remember. It was a long time ago. Um, and um, and they were basically open source, using open source software to build systems for for customers. And the sorts of the sorts of things that our customers wanted. The first thing that we did was build um, a subscription, uh, a content management and subscription management system for an IT magazine so it was a b2b magazine um so they had i don't know fifty thousand subscribers so we built them a subscriber management platform and we built them a content management platform to to allow them to publish directly onto the web and then and then they took that content and they pushed it through quark express and they created their magazine and sent that magazine out as a physical coffee copy that was in 2000 right we built that we scoped it and built it in 2000 and you know they 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 they, are, they were either going to go and buy a uh, buy a solution called Vignette, which was like seven hundred and fifty thousand yeah. dollars, or they paid us two hundred thousand dollars to build build it from scratch using open source software, um, and we did it. We did. We worked our we worked ourselves really hard. I mean, it was just brutal. Ollie and Guillaume in particular worked insanely hard, and um, and we shipped this thing. And it and it worked. It was good, and, and it was based on this um, thing called an, the Ars Digital Community System, which was an open source software platform that used you know database backed software with a kind of scripting layer running on a web server to um, you know to host websites and, and to push right. stuff online. So, you know, early early web stuff. This was two thousand, right? Yeah. Um, and then the next thing we built was an email. Uh, marketing platform, a spamming system, which thankfully isn't used anymore. Uh, then we built an online school and so on. And so we built a whole bunch of stuff and so, we learned an insane amount of, uh, around how to build software, how not to build software. I used to, we discussed uh, the merits and the challenges of, on, of open source versus, you know, because this is basically the beginning of SaaS, although we didn't call it SaaS back then. And, and, and we weren't building once and deploying many times. We were basically implementing... One system for one company, another system for another. It was online, of course, so it was sitting on web servers wherever. Actually, we we ended up buying the servers and hosting it on our servers for our customers. Um, so we went through this early stage of like kind of imagining what SaaS would look like, but we never figured out that actually, if we built it once and then uh, licensed it to people, like WordPress.com, for example, we could have built a content management system platform, but we we weren't we weren't Mature enough or good enough to figure that out. So you, but you did that for a couple of years, right? I mean, that was the Five, industry. five years. Five I years, mean, year. yeah. we we ended up like year three. I think we made three million pounds and or two and a half million pounds in revenues, and 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 we were kind of like doing really well. Year four, um, I, I think we made some bad mistakes, and and I I made zero, you know, as a as a as a partner in the firm. Uh, I made apps I made z- I took home zero that year um, which was that was that yeah that was the year that um yeah so I went through uh, personal yeah. challenges my marriage fell and so on
0: yeah it's not it's not bad for a five thousand five thousand dollar was a pound investment a couple of years before yeah though. yeah 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 so yeah, we, never,
1: we never we never raised any money
0: yeah incredible I love that,
1: but how, so how did how did the
0: idea to veer into social social listening and social intelligence then uh, come about? So you, you're busy building software for other other people. What happens? What 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 makes you decide that that's the direction to go in? And, and how does Brandwatch start?
1: Well, uh, Guillaume had so of the four partners. Guillaume had gone into back into academia. Um, Oli had left the company. Uh, basically we had a we had a bad year, and Ollie felt really bad and because he, he felt like he was responsible for it. Um, and so he said he he kind of resigned. Um, so Steve and I were left were left uh, kind of as the two partners. We were probably about 30 people. We were still running it like in very much a very transparent way, but at this point not everybody was paid the same because it became obvious pretty quickly that some people were more valuable than others. And it, and it wasn't it wasn't the founders that were saying that it was the staff. Well, like somebody would come up to me and say, "Hang on a second, I'm paid the same as him, and I'm my all my I'm I'm doing twice as much work as him, and all my customers are really successful, and and his not so much sort of thing." I mean, I'm exaggerated to make a point. Yeah. And when presented with that kind of you know Animal Farm type uh, argument sort of thing, you realize that actually. This whole utopia idea of everybody paid the same and full transparency doesn't work so well in practice. <laughs> we we've got this cooperation competition thing going on as human beings, and so I, I which I find utterly fascinating, because we both compete with and cooperate with, um, you know, uh, our, our colleagues and our customers and uh, you know partners and so on all, all the time. It's really really interesting. Open source software is a great example of that in played out in in in. You know in in digital anyway so we got to a point after about five years that the motivation for running a company like runtime collective was beginning to wane i think for steve and i because it's like what's the what's what's going on here um we're not really learning as much as we were at the beginning um we're not what are we building like what's the purpose we've got we ran this experiment to build this collective kind of worked in some levels kind of didn't work on others um uh it worked on the kind of cultural aspect didn't work on the on the on the economic aspect um but what where, where where's it going and at that point and you know this was uh, this was 2006 possibly something around, around that sort of time you know google was emerging facebook was emerging twitter like there were incredible things happening in the world of online and and we were this kind of company little company in brighton and it was like well you know Steve is a insanely smart dude, and uh, you know, did go off and work for Google and then DeepMind. Um, and and I and I wanted, I was a bit more ambitious than where we what we were doing. So the two of us were like, you know, either we shut this down or or, uh, or we pivot or something. I wanted to build a product company. So we built we built a system for a a customer, which was the kind of beginnings of a web crawler. And uh, so I thought. You know, I had this idea of brand watch, so I thought, well, I'll take that and I'll build, I'll build, I'll build this brand watch thing I've got in my head. And Steve was like, well, I want to go and join Google, so so he went off and joined Google, and I built brand watch. So, so I mean, when you say
0: it started off as a as a a web crawler, uh, when we talk web crawler, are we talking Google type, you know, search engine uh, type web crawler, or what? Yeah, was- So,
1: I mean, you can buy web crawlers as a service now. It's actually a pretty simple technology. What it what it is is basically a, a, a kind of like a bot that goes to a, a website, downloads the HTML. Uh, you know, can cycle through by following links, um, or or takes an RSS feed and then just goes to the most recent stuff, downloads the HTML, strips out all of the stuff which is irrelevant, like navigation, uh, adverts. Footers, um, anything which is you know on the, on every page, and then gets the kind of the the, the 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 rump of the page, like you know the meat of the page, and puts it in an index, and and that index then can be uh, serve as a lookup for a search engine. So yeah, that's exactly right. And and, and we've built we've built the first kind of half a version, if you like, of a web crawler, and. And now you can rent them for nothing, right, or not much. But um, and, but I thought we could take this and the search engine, the search engine opportunity is clearly not there any longer. But um, but but we, the, an insights engine is like brands need to understand what the world is saying about them, and that's where it started.
0: So so this is what two thousand seven. You say end of two thousand six, two thousand seven. Um, exactly November two thousand six. Yeah, social media is on the rise and you've built this this crawler web crawler that is is going in essentially indexing content and that that's out there was it was it an obvious choice to to focus that on the social uh, and i suppose publishing side of uh, of the web early on or did that come a
1: bit later it was very much the the choice from the beginning okay. um it wasn't called social media back then. It was called things like um, consumer-generated media or, or user-generated content (UGC) that kind of thing. Yeah. So um, we focused, and it was things like forums, like special interest forums, like Money Saving Expert and um, net and you know auto uh, auto blogs and and so on and so forth. Um, that those were the big those were the big things at the beginning, um, and then of course Twitter. Uh, came about pretty much around that time, uh, and Facebook and so on. So, so it, it it very quickly went from forums and news and forums and blogs to news and then social, and and that you yeah. know. And and what did what did the industry look like back then? Uh,
0: was there was there a lot of competition? Were there people doing similar things? Uh, or and and was there a need in the industry, or did you have to go out and create that that need and that
1: interest? So when I had the idea, uh, and it, was, it wasn't just me sitting in, in a bath, sort of eureka moment, it was with a couple of friends and just thinking, thinking things through. But when we, when we kind of came up with this idea, um, kind of felt like, oh, this is an original idea because I'd never heard of it before. But then we did some research and there were already companies doing it, right? So Nielsen, uh, which you've probably heard of, the big uh, market research company, they, they had a, they, they already had a a technology called Buzzmetrics, metrics uh, and they'd written lots of papers online around sentiment analysis and language analysis and so And when we looked at that we were like oh god you know this is they're years ahead of us and i remember one of our engineers saying well we'll never catch them up like they're years ahead of us they've got they've, they're, they're really smart and and and, and i just thought well, We're going to give it a try. I was just uh, pigheaded. Uh, I probably didn't have a plan B, which is helpful actually. Not having a plan B is really helpful. Um, and, and then there, there were a couple of other companies. There was a company called Symphony in the US. Um, that, in fact, there was a Forrester Wave that talked about um, uh, the I can't remember what they were called, but maybe online reputation management tools or something like that. That's right. yeah. Um, so there were a few, but none of them were really none of them were were great software. Nielsen was the closest to software, like pure software solution. But we came at it like we're just going to build this into in tech, and um, and of course that's hard because you've got to, to analyze the language and do all of the scaling of the back end to deal with the enormous amount of data. Um, but then eventually, when the tech gets close to or overtakes the human, then game over. Yeah, yeah, sure. So. Um, I mean, I am correct me if I'm
0: wrong, but my my understanding of how a company like Crimson Hexagon started and then comparing it to to how Brandwatch started, uh, Crimson came at it from from almost from the text analysis point of view, you know, when Gary King came up with um uh, with with these algorithms to to analyze large amounts of text. And you guys came at it from a data source and indexing perspective, right? So 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 two similar companies in the same industry but coming at it from completely different directions. Um I mean uh, in retrospect, it's it's a, it's an obvious uh, union that uh, that you guys joined forces in the end, correct?
1: Yeah, but uh, 100%. You're absolutely right on the DNA of the two companies. Um, uh, I would say that a second piece of DNA for for Brandwatch is that our early customers were were agencies in the UK. Like when you talked about having to st- you know start a market. There were competitors, but they were all US based. Um, Nobody was doing anything in the UK. So we would go and pitch to, let's say, British Gas, and they go, Well, this is interesting. Don't know who here would use this, or we don't have a budget line for it. Um, So, you know, 100% it was an educational play, you know, as in we were educating the market for the first um, three or four years. Uh, And that is hard work, right? It's really hard work because no matter you know you have to convince people a that they need it and then secondly that they need they need to find the budget and it fits into their organization and so on and so forth and and it's just really it's just really really tough unless there's an obvious swap out and the software is as good as the the humans which um uh there wasn't at the time anyway the the early uh adopters for brownwatch were agencies digital agencies in in london uh, in particular um, and they had a, a, a vast number of needs, so their so their their customers had these different use cases. They were different languages, different um, industries. So we had so it was very quickly into the evolution of Brandwatch. We we realized that we needed to build flexibility into the user experience. So the users needed to be able to use these tools to actually do lots of different tasks. So that's why even today brown watch feels a little bit like a kind of swiss army knife mm. um uh which is a blessing and a curse it's a blessing in that once you know how to use it you can use it for everything um but if you don't know how to use it it's like whoa this is like all i want to do is this one thing and then i've got all of these like other blades that what are these other blades um so you know that's one thing that we're looking to solve actually in 2021 okay uh, so yeah so, so. It's fascinating that, um, uh, you know, how, how
0: you guys kind of got to this point where, where I think you are now being able to solve all three of those things at the same time, um, but, but it's been a journey. Do you remember what that first big deal was that, uh, you know, you said agencies, but, but was there one big deal that really stood out for you that you just thought, this is the client that uh, is going to help take us into the future?
1: Um, that never quite that level of that singularity but i remember every single one of the first 10 deals that we did i remember the people i remember i can almost put myself back in the room the first deal we did was we launched a product in august 2007 and then um jonathan wright who's a guy that i met i think at a on a digital ski holiday um uh, worked at Alliance in Leicester, which was a building society in the UK uh, you know mutual funds sort of thing and um, and I pitched it to him and he said yeah we, we we'll, we'll buy a subscription we want to track um, in particular these kind of financial forums uh, for mentions of, of, of our product of these products that we've got and this new product that we're launching which I think was called premier 21 it was an account that was aimed at 21 year olds Um And so they paid us 1500 pounds, 1500 pounds a month for access to all of the the whole system. and they were our first customer, and I'd, I'm not even sure he knows that actually. Um, uh, you don't tell your first customer that. Oh, by the way, you're our first customer, yeah. <laughs> because uh, because you think that they'll be like, "What? Uh, <laughs> I thought you were much more significant than you are." So, sort of well, so there's this kind of moment where you just want to kind of give him a hug and say thank you for being our first customer. But, you, but we'll tag him in the link. To say that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think I think now I would like. I'm older and like you know. More gnarly, and I'd and I, I be like, you know what? You're our first customer. You are, you're the pioneer. You're the genius that saw this before anybody else. There's ways of turning it around, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, anyway, um, I've never actually get uh, where, where, uh, when we have some when we IPO the company. I will find Jonathan and send him a, a bottle of whiskey. Anyway, so that was the first one, but but then we didn't we didn't make our second sale for four months. Wow. So that was really, and we were running out of money. So I managed to raise a, a second uh, kind of significant seed round, like half a million pounds um, w- during the period between making our first and second sale, which uh, was a miracle, actually. Um, or at least uh, it was um, fortunate, fortuitous. So then with the second sale was an, a- an agency um, uh an organization called market sentinel run by a guy that became a really good friend of mine, Mark Rogers and his brother, Simon. Um, and that was a re- they looked at our products and said, this is exactly what we've been wanting. Uh, and, and that was so good when you hear something like that, yeah, they were paying us a couple of thousand a month. Um, and then there was a company in, in in Brighton, an agency in Brighton called Spannerworks. It was our third customer. But the one the one that actually stands out for to, to ask, answer your question, was when um, a London media agency paid us seven thousand five hundred pounds a month. <clears throat> and That was in March two thousand and eight. So uh, nine months after we launched, seven thousand five hundred pounds a month. We were like, holy shit! Like that's so much money for us. Like it was. Re- I mean, that's still a big you know a decent deal for for brand watch um and w- that would i remember thinking at that moment if somebody's prepared to pay that amount of money there must be there's there's value here
0: so so giles i think you know a couple of years ago there was there was the i mean i think there was a discussion already around uh, you know private data um or, or people's public and private data being being used and um Maybe used in nefarious ways, and, and suddenly there was an awakening to the, to the realization that uh, the stuff that they're saying online is maybe not as um, as private as they think it is, uh, and and I think the movement started, and the Cambridge Analytica story came out, and that that really sparked this uh, this public interest in uh, in that kind of stuff. But you know, how how does that influence the, the way that you guys are, are thinking about Brandwatch and, and the way that you're seeing the future of, uh, of Brandwatch, our, you know, our whole industry is about understanding social and digital um, discussion. So, uh, you know, these last few years have been quite fascinating, um, but it's going to change, you know, you know, our whole view of, of how we leverage that for, for interest is going to change. How do you, how do you see that um, influencing what you guys do at a, at a company like Brandwatch?
1: Yeah. I think I've probably got maybe three things to say on this. Firstly, that um, it's the use to which you put the data that's the most important thing, and that use can be for good or for or or for not so good. If you're using um, private information or or personally identifiable information to influence people's choices around elections and somehow. Um, you kind know, pseudo brainwash them, um, then obviously that's not great, right. Um, if you're using that information to better serve them, to give them more of what they want and uh, ask for to understand them better, then you could say, well, that's perfectly good. If not, not, you know, not just good, but that's something that we should encourage so it's the the but how do you police the usage like that's really very very challenging and once data gets out there because it's um free to copy as it were you know digital data is is free to free as in money as in beer to copy um uh it's uh, and and there's no kind of rights management attached to personal data um it's very challenging to actually police that. So so then you move into the next idea, which is the idea around anonymizing that data. So you take out the pers- PII, personally, personally identifiable information, and you start to look at human data, behavioral data in cohorts based on some similarity, location, age, preferences, whatever, whatever. And then of course, grouping people together into anonymized data sets is, um, is challenging because you have to understand how you're doing it and so on and so forth. So, But it is it does give you safeguards against that kind of uh, um, abuse of usage. My personal view is that uh, the aggregation analysis, understanding and, and um, uh, use of large-scale data sets is, Massively important to move to move us forwards as a species. Um, you know, the reason why human beings are where we are is because we have language and we pass down stories and information to each generation, and we and then we started to you know print it and have libraries and so on, and that we were able to collect, store, and share information and make ourselves smarter. Uh, and that's allowed us to become, uh, to evolve to where we've got to right now. And we're about to kind of go into a phase of evolution, which I think is an explosive phase where you've got massive amounts of data and the ability to analyze it at an extraordinary scale. And if you just take one obvious example, which is health data, and how in diagnosing different, different diseases and looking at the cell structure and the, the genetics of, of different people and how that's affected their um their health over their life we will be able to create treatments and genetic um uh surgeries and whatever that 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 will actually improve and extend human life now we're only going to be able to do that if we share um health data dna um cellular analysis at scale um but the benefits are huge like enormous we could double human life life spans within the next kind of 50 years be, by 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 kind of getting smart with how we use our biometric data yeah. now that's gonna happen of course because it's in everybody's best interest how we make it happen safely is a really interesting um uh challenge and it's the, the one of the challenges of, of 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 our time
0: yeah yeah indeed i mean i think i think that's there's definitely a, a second discussion for, for us to have around around that and the evolution of, of humans and that next step. And then I think the term you, you use is collective intelligence. Um, incredibly fascinating stuff. So I, I'd love to kind of dig into that uh, in another episode. Love but, to. Giles thank you. Thank you so much. I, I think, you know, founding, building and, and running a company as successful as Brandwatch for, for 13, 14 years is such an incredible achievement, something that I strive for. Um, and I'm sure that a lot, of, a lot of people listening to this are going to, um, take really, really valuable nuggets from it. Uh, so I appreciate your time. Um, maybe, maybe to, to leave it there and, and end off with a golden nugget for, for anybody trying to do something similar. Is there anything that you've identified maybe from a personal perspective, something that, that you've experienced, something that you've found yourself growing as an individual through these last, I guess, 20 years, um, of, uh, building a business that you could share something that you think has given you maybe that unfair advantage
1: like there's all, there's characteristics around being a, a, around anything which are which is kind of challenging that that end up being important like you know persistence and not never giving up and all those sorts of things i totally i totally believe that there are times when you just think well actually i think that's the secret actually you don't let yourself get into th- get into that. Oh, I just want to give up now. Just like don't even, the minute you start things get hard. That's one place where you don't go to. It's almost also like um, the idea that uh, oh, well, once I've sold my company, blah blah blah. I try never to let myself think of the thing like that because you end up in some sort of fantasy land. Whereas actually, you've got to deal with the reality that's in front of you. Um, I think for me, what I've done over the last Five or six years as I've got a bit older um, is I've ended up like health my health and mental uh, kind of de- uh, development have become I've, I've put them more first more so uh, and actually that that's important so I you know I work out more than I used to I'm probably fitter than I've been for 20 or 30 years I have a coach that I talk to that helps me kind of just stay grounded when I'm feeling like uh, anxious or annoyed or whatever. And I think that kind of self care thing, actually, is because to build a business, or anything really, uh, of of that, that, you know, grows to a certain size. It's, it doesn't happen overnight. It's like a 15 year journey, a 20 year journey, or whatever it is. And that and and that's a long time so you so that so you you have to look after yourself along the way and I, and I think the other thing i'm going to take from this
0: is you know if you if you're looking at a long a long journey don't uh, don't run after the first opportunity you have if you don't if, if you don't want to sell cosmetics uh, and perfumes then uh, move along so <laughs> so uh, giles again thank you so much i really appreciate your time uh can't wait for all of this to be over and and Come and visit up in
1: Brighton. Soon. Oh, me too. It'd be great to. I'll look forward to hosting you here, Kelvin. It'd be my absolute pleasure. Brilliant.
0: Giles, thank you so much.